Good morning, NFL fans. Welcome to another episode of Football Nation's Monday Morning Huddle. I'm your host, Dave Holcomb. We got a great show for you today. A lot of awesome matchups in the NFL for Week 11. The last undefeated team went down. We will not have an undefeated regular season team in the NFL in 2013. The 1972 Dolphins are safe. So are the 2007 Patriots, the only two teams. Actually, that's not true. I was going to say they're the only two teams in the regular season to go undefeated. Uh, in the Super Bowl era, that is true. But prior to that, there were teams to go undefeated and uh, not win the national, champ- uh, national championship, the NFL championship. Uh, of course, the 1972 Dolphins you know, probably have the biggest sigh of relief as they are the only team to go undefeated in every single game they play. But anyway, we have no undefeated teams left in the NFL. The Kansas City Chiefs lost to the Denver Broncos on Sunday night, which I think really lived up to its hype. It was a really interesting game. That's going to be our leading story. We'll also talk about the Saints and 49ers, a big, lots of big calls actually at the end of that game. Uh, that, those will be the two games we go over in the first segment. Second segment, we go to some four and well, prior to the prior to Sunday, some three and six teams getting some W's and staying alive. The Steelers and Giants get big wins at home to move to four and six, respectable uh, level or respectable record to have after playing ten games. Uh, still not five hundred. But sadly, I'd say sadly because of the other teams in their division, they're still alive in uh, their division and, and in the hunt for the playoffs. And even uh, if you, in Pittsburgh's case, they have a chance, a pretty good chance, of getting a wild card, that fifth spot with uh, some other teams losing. Uh, the, the team right now that holds the sixth uh, place in the AFC is just a game ahead. At five and five, so we'll talk about the Steelers and Giants, their big wins, and then in the fourth and down segment, we'll talk about all of the four and six teams in the AFC. The hit on Drew Brees, of course, we'll be talking about that uh, in the first segment as well. And quarterback Mount Rushmore, a nice article written on FootballNation.com, the top four. You know, I I would say the top four quarterbacks in NFL history, at least the four that Brandon Thorne put on uh, the NFL's quarterback, Mount Rushmore. And uh, we'll discuss what four quarterbacks are on there. And that'll be our show. So let's get to the Chiefs and Broncos. I'm looking at the stats right now. Again, the final in Denver. The Broncos defeated the Chiefs 27-17. Chiefs had their chance in this game. They really did. And I think everyone's reaction, especially if you didn't watch the game, a lot of people are going to be saying here on Monday morning and throughout this week, ah, the Chiefs aren't for real. The Chiefs can't do it. Uh, Alex Smith didn't look too good. Uh, Alex Smith really wasn't that bad. Um, he, He didn't complete a ton of his passes. He was 21 of 45. Several of his passes were tipped. Uh, which, I mean, could be credited to him or his offensive line. To be quite honest, this game came down to the offensive lines. 
And the Denver Broncos line played much better than Kansas City's. And I'm, I'm on ESPN.com right now, and I'm looking at the headline for their top story, you know, in the, in the one box. And it's, it says something like, Peyton Manning ended up being the difference in this game. Well, yeah, I, I mean, he out-threw out Alex Smith by 100 yards, um, and he completed 24 of 40 of his passes, and Alex Smith was 21 of 45. I mean, that's pretty similar, not, not, not too far off there with those completion percentages. The big difference to me, by the, by the way, Alex Smith had two touchdown passes, Peyton Manning only one. The big difference for me, zero sacks for Peyton Manning, three for Alex Smith. And again, a couple of those sacks, I uh, felt like uh, Smith had a chance to throw it away, especially at the end of the half, uh, end of the first half, he, he got sacked and Kansas City had to burn a timeout. That was a really big play in the game. Uh, but Denver's offensive line was just unbelievable. It was it was great. And for a team that came into the game with, what, 35-plus sacks, almost 40 sacks on the season already, that, that's really been the Chiefs' bread and butter and, and the turnovers. They're not a team that's going to hold you to under 50 yards rushing or under 300 yards passing or under 250 yards passing and under 300 yards total. The Chiefs, you're going to gain yards on them. You're going to get big plays. And Denver got a couple big plays. They were sparse. They weren't as plentiful as in other games the Broncos have had. But they got some big plays. And Kansas City makes their money on getting sacks and getting big plays on defense themselves and scoring on special teams. They didn't get to score on defense or special teams. And the one turnover they got on a fumble recovery, the first play the Chiefs ran on offense was then a fumble recovered by Denver. Those are the only two turnovers in the entire game. Back-to-back plays in the first quarter. And at that point, it was 3-0 Broncos. And after they got that fumble from Kansas City, they went down the field, scored a touchdown, and went down 10-0. And I, I think coming into the game, the big question marks for me, what I was looking for the most in this game was... What is the final score going to be? Is this going to be a game that Denver wants to run? Are they going to dictate the pace? Is this going to be a 30-point-plus affair? Or is this going to be a Kansas City Chief-type game? Is it going to be a grinder? Is it going to be a a 20-21 or a 17-14? And (laughs) the answer was kind of in the middle. Um, They they kind of met in the middle. I, I would say at times it really was like... A Denver game, and it had a Bronco-type pace to it, especially in the second quarter, late first quarter, early second quarter, where the Broncos scored two of their touchdowns in the game. Um, they they got to a pretty nice uh, pace there. But then at times, early in the third quarter, Kansas City, what, shut out Denver, I think three straight drives, where they got really... No yards, um, no points, uh, maybe at one first down or so. But in three drives, it's, it felt like Denver had about 25, 30 yards. And uh, at, that, at that point, it really was a Kansas City-type game. The only thing that Kansas City didn't do at that point, which was what I led with, not capitalizing on their opportunities, 
Kansas City's offense at that point has got to score. Because at halftime, they went down 17-10. to 10. And I think a lot of people, a lot of fans, would have thought, especially when it was 10 nothing, that, all oh, this game's over. Kansas City's offense can't come back from this. And that was kind of in the back of my mind as well, in that, okay, it's 10 nothing. If Denver keeps up this pace and continues to score, can Kansas City continue to keep up the pace? And, and being down 10 nothing, Kansas City kind of had to go away from their game a bit because they had to open up their offense. They didn't open up their offense a ton, and maybe they should have opened it up more. But I think Kansas City did their best to keep it their type of game and run the ball. Jamal Charles had a great game, 16 carries, 78 yards. Had a long of 35. You had Alex Smith going out there. He had five carries, 52 yards. So they they tried to do their best in um, running the ball, keeping a balance, kind of following that blueprint that the Colts set when they beat the Broncos a few weeks ago. But the difference in that game was the Colts were able to get up and get to a big lead and then kind of sit, run the clock, keep the balance, that this and that. Kansas City, at no point in this game, had a lead. They weren't able to kind of dictate the pace. Uh, at times they did, but they weren't able to keep it the game that they wanted to play as much. I think they could have gotten back to it in the third quarter. They had some momentum. If they would have scored a touchdown in the first seven, eight minutes of the second half, tied the game at 17, it's a different story. If they go down, score a touchdown off of that fumble and not turn it back over to Denver in the, in the first quarter and take the lead 7-3, to three, completely different game. Completely different. But Denver, I got, you got to give credit to the Broncos. Everybody was talking about the Kansas City defense. Denver defense played very well in this game. Very well. But I would say the big difference was the offensive lines in that Denver's offensive line protected Peyton Manning, especially with that bum ankle. He didn't really was not hurried at all, no sacks. He was pretty comfortable back there in the pocket. Will that be the same case two weeks from now when these two teams play in Kansas City? Now let's talk about uh, you know what this win and loss means for each team. Now it means that Kansas City is not going to go undefeated. Not really a big surprise there. I don't. I didn't expect. I don't think anyone should have expected Kansas City to go undefeated. They won two games last year. Their their goal is still just make the playoffs. But it, uh, right now they they have home field advantage and a division title in sight. That uh, I guess is the new goal. That's what they want to do, and they still have a great chance of doing that. To me, this game on Sunday night was a must win for the Broncos. A must win. If they lost this game, they would have fallen to eight and two, which is still a great record. But at eight and two, and Kansas City at ten and zero, you're two games behind Kansas City. You've already lost to them once, and you got to play them one more time in Kansas City, where the Chiefs have a great home field advantage. This way, it evens the playing field. Both teams are nine and one now. Denver has a big game coming up at New England next week. They could very easily lose that game. Kansas City has an important game, too. They also play uh, San Diego. But San Diego's been slipping a bit. That, I think, two or three weeks ago would have been a much more important game or a much more uh, a game that we would have our eyes on. 
but it's in Arrowhead. The only chance I think Kansas City losing that game is if they look ahead to Denver. But just playing them, it's kind of an awkward uh, thing to look ahead to them when you just played them. So it's like, is Kansas City more likely to have a low this coming weekend because they just played Denver or they're looking ahead to Denver again? I don't know. Same thing with with the Broncos. Are they more are they more likely to come out flat in Foxborough because they just got a big win or they're looking ahead again to playing in Kansas City? But either way, two really big games for the Broncos in the next 2 weeks. I think they have to they, they still have to win really both of them. Um but I think they can get away with just one win. Honestly, I think the Chiefs are going to win the next time they play at Arrowhead. And I think the last point I want to make about this game, which would support my case for Kansas City winning in two weeks at home, besides the fact that they'll have a better chance of sacking Peyton Manning with that pass rush uh, and the noise crowd mixed in, I think the, the Kansas City defensive line and linebackers will have a much better showing against the offensive line of Denver. The other thing is Kansas City, they're still a very young team. You have to remember, even though they were 9-0, and you know, Alex Smith has been there before, but Jamal Charles, you know this offensive line, guys like Eric Fisher, they talked about uh, during the broadcast, playing very well, but a rookie. Other guys like that on the defense haven't really been in a huge game like this on national television. I think in the first quarter, maybe they were a little nervous. They weren't quite ready for the big time, the big moments, really throughout the game. So Kansas City had their chances and weren't able to convert like they had all season. I think at home in two weeks, they're much more comfortable. They've got this game under their belt. Even though it was a loss, it was a learning experience. I think it's a much different game at Arrowhead, and and Kansas City is able to win that one. But we'll see. It's certainly very exciting. I'm glad that it was a close game. I'm glad Denver didn't run away with it. I'm glad Kansas City had a good showing. In a way, I'm glad Denver won to keep the division race close, and it makes the game in Kansas City and this next coming week with Denver in New England even that much more important. Now, we don't know yet what New England's record is because they're playing on Monday Night Football, of course, and we're recording on Monday morning. Let's go into what I thought was the top game in the NFC, Saints and 49ers. Now, I said that we weren't going to talk about the Drew Brees hit until the fourth and long segment. We might as well talk about it now. Uh, I guess it's kind of awkward to talk about the game now, not talk about that hit, and then come back to it later. Well, there's an article written on coldhardfootballfacts.com, a sister website of Football Nation. Don't know who it was written by. Kind of strange. Uh, There's no author posted here. But I think the title of the article says it all. Pussified NFL hits new low. San Francisco 49ers penalized for hitting Drew Brees' shoulder pads. Now, if you were watching this game, or if you weren't watching this game, you should go check out the video. But at the end of this game, the, the Saints were down by six at one point, 20 to 14. And they had hit, kicked a field goal inside their own five yard line to make it 20 to 17. Not their own five yard line, the 49ers' five yard line. To make it 20-17. to 17. 49ers offense, I think, goes three and out, whatever. They give the ball back to the Saints. Drew Brees 
driving down the field at midfield. I believe it was Patrick Willis. Gets a hand on the shoulder pads around the neck area, I will say, of Drew Brees. Brings him down for a sack. But immediately, a flag is thrown. 15-yard penalty, personal foul, automatic first down. And the Saints go down, kick another field goal to tie the game. And then the 49ers, again their offense, not able to move the ball at all. Nearly get cough up a safety. Colin Kaepernick's able to get sacked on the one. And then the 49ers punt the ball back away. Saints drive down. Garrett Hartley again. Field goal. Saints win. 49ers lose. Now, I, I do think this is an interesting topic, this penalty that was called the personal foul. And watching it live, okay, because I know you can go back and watch the, um, the instant replay now on the video and, and see that it probably shouldn't have been called a personal foul. And you can look at the picture like I'm looking at right now, and clearly there was no head-to-head contact. His hand is on Drew Brees' shoulder pad. It is somewhat around his neck, but he's got it on Drew Brees' right shoulder. Patrick Willis is on Drew Brees' left side of his body. So, naturally, his arm is somewhat around his neck area. I mean, what do you expect the defender to do? you, you got to bring down the quarterback. He didn't go hard at his head, and he didn't go at his knees. And he's got the ball. He hasn't released it yet. So, in that sense, I will say it was a terrible call. But, if you watch it live, at full speed and not at a different angle than what you saw live. It did look like a pretty vicious hit. I will say that. Vicious, does that belong in the NFL? I mean, in this day and age, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it's, it's sad to say, but we're getting further and further away from hits like that. And personally... Looking at the replay, yes, I think the referees missed the call. But if you watch it live, and what my immediate reaction was, was yes, that's a personal foul. So how can you really blame the refs for calling a personal foul when I watched it on TV? And I, that was my first thought. My immediate thought was personal foul. Wow, that's a big play. That's a big penalty. But that is the right call. It's not until you slow it down where you really say... Bad call. So, to be honest, I understand why the refs called it. I wish they wouldn't have. It Could it have changed the game? Yes, I think it could have. But at the end of the day, if you're a 49ers fan, or you're a player on the 49ers, you got to get your offense together, or be worried about your offense if you're just a fan. Not about this call. Right, you're going to face bad calls almost every week. And the good teams are, over, are able to overcome them. And San Francisco, again, their offense is dormant, especially when it's needed in the fourth quarter. Last week against Carolina, they fell down 10-9. to All they needed was a field goal to go back ahead. Weren't able to get any kind of movement on offense with Colin Kaepernick at the end of the game. And really the same thing here. After the touchdown at the beginning of the third quarter to Vernon Davis, 
49ers got really nothing. And uh, it was a, a big win for the Saints, able to move to 8-2. and two. 49ers, I mean, I don't, I don't think they're in danger of missing the playoffs or anything. But you got to be concerned about this pass offense. 127 yards for Colin Kaepernick on the day against the Saints. Against the Saints. I mean, I know they're a much better defense than most people give credit for. And they were at home. It was a tough game for the 49ers. But still, I think this is a game that they really needed after losing to Carolina last week. They've basically fallen out of the race in the NFC West, and they're just hoping for a wild card berth. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention about the 49ers, which we didn't talk about last week when we did our NFC midseason report with Cooper Allen. The 49ers are an interesting team to me because I, I, if you follow my power rankings, I had been ranking them pretty high up there after their five-game winning streak, even though they, those five wins were against pretty much bad teams. Um, I, I still thought that at some point the 49ers were going to take over the NFL. They were going to be maybe the one dominant team. Maybe they don't catch the Seahawks. But they get to the playoffs, go on a run, and get back to the Super Bowl. That's That was my feeling just about two weeks ago. Well, what's curious to me, now, if you take out this one loss, take out the Saints' loss, and look at the teams that they've lost to. They've lost to the Seahawks, the Colts, the Panthers. Those, to me, are physical defensive teams. The Seahawks want to knock you around. They want to run the ball on you. They have a run-first mentality and defense. Same thing with Carolina. They have a running quarterback, Cam Newton. I mean, he's a much better thrower, I would say, than a Colin Kaepernick or even a Russell Wilson. But they want to run first and play defense. And I just think it's ironic that the 49ers are now having trouble with teams that are the exact same as them. The 49ers want to run the ball first. They want to play defense. And mix in a few Colin Kaepernick throws and runs. But what I think is kind of funny or kind of, you know, whatever, ironic, is that the the teams that seem to give San Francisco the most trouble this year are mere images of themselves. In games like Carolina. Carolina game and the Seahawks game. They got... Out hit, to be honest, they were they were the less physical team. Their opponent was more physical and ran the ball better. And then Colin Kaepernick wasn't able to step up. And I think a lot of people could say, well, do they miss Alex Smith, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And, then, and maybe, <laughs> quite frankly, maybe. Um, but with Colin Kaepernick, it just seems like they're not as tough of a team. Is that just because the defense is another year older? Uh, is it... I don't know what it is, but I really do think that they are having more trouble against a team that wants to run the ball, a team that's exactly the same as them. And I would think they would match up well against those teams, right? But teams like Green Bay and New Orleans, even though they didn't win the game against New Orleans, it was a much closer contest than Seattle and Indianapolis 
Yeah, they only lost by a point to Carolina, but I think Carolina outplayed them. They were the only ones that scored a touchdown in that game. So I think it's very curious why San Francisco is being out hit in these games. And when they come up against an opponent, everything is about matchups in the NFL. And what matchups you're going to get in the playoffs. And if I was a 49er fan, I would rather match up against a Detroit, a Green Bay, a, uh, a, a New Orleans, a team that likes to open it up, even though San Francisco has problems opening it up on offense. I would rather face a team that opens it up and hope my defense can stop them, which San Francisco's defense play very well against the Saints, then play a team that likes to run and pound and play a slow-paced game like Carolina or Seattle. And I think that is very, very curious for the 49ers this season. Now, real quick, let's talk about the Saints, 8-2. and two. They got a big game coming up soon against the Seahawks. I believe that's in two weeks. Yes, they play on Thursday night at Atlanta this coming week. Can't chalk that up for a win yet. It is on the road. And it, but Atlanta has been just awful this season. And Seattle is going to have a bye this coming week. New Orleans, kind of a mini-bye because their game's on Thursday, and then that game is on Monday night. So about 10 days off for the Saints. Um, what, 15 days for the Seahawks? So um, definitely uh, going to be, I would say, the top matchup of that week. First, first Monday night matchup in December. Man, it's already getting to that point of the season. For the Saints, though, I'm looking at their schedule and how they've done. And they did lose to New England, a team that's, I would say, a high-powered offense, even though you could argue in Week 6 they really weren't a high-power offense yet. But the, the Saints have trouble a little bit against those, quote-unquote, physical teams. And I would, that would be my one question mark about the Saints and when they go up to Seattle and play Carolina twice in the last four weeks of the season. How are they going to do against the top defense, especially on the road? Both their losses this season are on the road at New England and at New York Jets. they got to play Seattle, St. Louis, and Carolina on the road, and Atlanta um, coming up in the next few weeks. So how do they respond to playing on the road? How do they respond against a team that's very physical, I think the defense for the Saints has been much better this year. I think New Orleans could end up being the top team in the NFC. I don't not sure, I don't think they're going to get home field because they're already a game behind Seattle. I don't think they're going to go into Seattle and win that game. And ultimately, if Seattle has home field, it's going to be very tough to beat them in the playoffs. So that game is so important for the Saints. But if they're able to go up in there and somehow get it done in Seattle, and get home field advantage, I think they are the favorite going forward in the NFC. But we'll see. That game still two weeks away. And like I said, the games against Carolina, those are big question marks to me. I think they could possibly split with Carolina with the Panthers looking better each and every week. I think Carolina has a really good chance, especially with the results, other results from uh, from Sunday. A lot of NFC North teams losing, this and that. Panthers have a great chance of uh, getting a wild card 
Of course, we're still waiting for their result, just like the Patriots, because they play New England on Monday Night Football. All right, I ran past what I really wanted to. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back with some talk about the Steelers and Giants getting big wins on Sunday. Welcome back to Football Nation's Monday Morning Huddle. Your host, Dave Holcomb. Don't forget, you can tweet at me, D-M-H-O-L-C-O-M-B. You can also send me an email, question about the show, or I can even get you, you get your comment on the show if you just have a comment. My, my uh, email, holcombmdavid at gmail.com. So like I said, we're going to talk about the Giants and the Steelers. Let's start in the Steel City. Article by David Levin. Uh, Steelers rallied to surprise Lions 37 to 27. Five things that we learned. I'm not going to name those five things. Uh, um, at least specifically, I won't. Um, I, I want everybody to go read Dave's article. But uh, I think he's right on the money with a lot of these things. Um, and the fact that the Lions have a huge second quarter. All 27 of their points were scored in the second quarter. And I wish there was some kind of way to break down quarter by quarter for yardage because if I remember correctly, I was watching this game, um, that uh, the Lions got some something like, you know, Matt Stafford, let's, let's look at his final line. His final yardage total was uh, 362 yards passing. I think he had over 300 of those yards in the second quarter alone. And <laughs> that's just, that was unbelievable. Uh, the, the, the display that they had in the second quarter. And Calvin Johnson started slowly, again, because all of Detroit did. Second quarter, he exploded. I don't know if all of his yards came in the second quarter, but he his final line was six catches, 179 yards, two touchdowns. Both his touchdowns came in the second quarter. Obviously, all of Detroit's scoring was in the second quarter. The guy did not catch a pass in the second half. Now, uh, this is also mentioned by Dave Levin, but Ike Taylor, and I don't want to say trash-talking, but his kind of telling of the media that he was excited about the challenge, I don't think what he said during the week, honestly, was really that badly. I think he was just excited excited for the challenge to cover the best wide receiver in the league. Kind of came up short at times, but I, I do think that other people, was whether it was Dick LeBeau's scheme or uh, maybe it was a safety or two that uh, kind of wasn't there to help out Ike. Um, but uh, he, um, he got exploited quite a bit. And there were a couple times where he missed tackles. But a lot of cornerbacks missed tackles on Megatron. So I can't really... Say Ike Taylor had a bad game. He just did, he did get exposed a few times um, by uh, Calvin Johnson. So uh, I do think Pittsburgh's initial plan was that Ike would be able to cover him one on one, and they were hoping you know to take out Reggie Bush and uh, the running game, Joaquin Bell, and some of these other receivers from Detroit by focusing on them and hoping that Ike 
kind of would just blanket that side of the field. That didn't happen. I mean, Ike is a great cornerback. Uh, He's a great cover man. And he had a chance to get an interception or two in this game, and he dropped both. But uh, Ike, Ike Taylor, not known for his catching ability. And uh, just, I mean, he's a good... He's a good cornerback, but he's not a he's not a Rob Woodson. He's not a Deion Sanders or even like a Darrell Revis where he's going to shut down an entire side of the field against a Calvin Johnson. So I understand uh, that Detroit exploited that. Um, and I think, yeah, most fans have to, yeah, whether you're a Steeler fan or not, and you want to criticize like Taylor, look, look at who he was going up against and, and the fact that he was in single coverage for most of the game. But Dick LeBeau making adjustments, Ike Taylor staying on Johnson, getting some help in the second half. Overall, the Pittsburgh defense played much better, obviously, than they did in the second quarter. And Stafford finished 19 of 46, completed well over 50% of his passes. Very, very good there for Pittsburgh. And uh, Detroit, honestly, just, they, they tried at times, but they weren't able to stay balanced. And neither team was able to establish a running game in this game. Le'Veon Bell had 18 carries for 36 yards. Uh, Reggie Bush, 12 carries for 31 yards. Joaquin Bell had a much better performance with 9 carries, 49 yards. He was the leading rusher for the Lions. But as we were talking about with uh, Calvin Johnson going off, Antonio Brown had a huge game and, and really a huge first quarter. Seven catches, 147 yards, two touchdowns. Both of those were in the first quarter. Both uh, top wide receivers were targeted 13 times, so I think both both guys were getting in the action. Johnson was outgained him, but Brown had more catches and the same number of touchdown grabs. So overall, we talked a few weeks ago about Des Bryant going up against Calvin Johnson. Now, I'm not saying Antonio Brown is, is in the same ballpark or the same caliber of talent as Calvin Johnson, but Brown having a really big season He's leading the NFL in catches, and this is a team that uh, there was some controversy in the fact that they let Mike Wallace go, they let him walk, they signed Brown to this big contract instead. Well, look at it now. (laughs) Mike Wallace not having a very good season in Miami. I mean, you can credit that to a couple other things besides Mike Wallace, but still, not having a good season, and Antonio Brown having, honestly, a record pace type season, um, leading the league in catches, a really spectacular year for him. Um, the outcome of this game now with, with, with Pittsburgh coming back and it was, it was 27, 23 Detroit after it was, it was 27, 20 at halftime. And then Pittsburgh had to kick a field goal from their one, well, Detroit's one inch line. I made it 27, 23, which I think was the right call not going for it on that down and kicking the field goal. And in the fourth quarter, Pittsburgh was able to score two touchdowns in the final five minutes, got a big interception late in the game um, to turn the tide after they had taken the lead 30-27. to Now, the, the drive of the game was that drive in the fourth quarter to start the fourth quarter where the Steelers were inside their own five-yard line. I got it right that time. And drove the length of the field in an eight-plus-minute drive, took a lot of time off the clock, and converted. Didn't have to settle for a field goal. Converted in the red zone 
Will Johnson catching the one-yard touchdown pass from Roethlisberger. And uh, Big Big Ben, big game from him, 29 of 45, 367 yards, four touchdowns. Does anybody still think that him and Todd Haley like aren't, aren't on the same page? <laughs> we talked uh, last week about how, you know, somewhat uh, ridiculous. Uh, all right, not somewhat, really ridiculous it was that Roethlisberger was being mentioned in trade discussions. Um, <laughs> so comes out and has a performance like that. By the way, he's still denying those reports. And uh, just had a, had a big game. And in the last few weeks, I know some Steeler fans and some um, people around Pittsburgh are talking about drafting a quarterback. Why? Why? I mean, why would you trade him? And why would you draft a quarterback? I, I know Ben is, what, 30 or 31. He's got two years left on his contract. But he is one of your best players left. Build your team around Big Ben, around Palomalo. Don't trade these guys away. Palomalo, I think, has a couple more good years in him, if he can stay healthy. That's always big, been a big if for him. But anyway, back to this year, I just figured I would mention uh, Roethlisberger and how, how well he's really played in the last few weeks. I mean, he had a, he, just like the entire Steelers team, had a tough beginning of the year, but playing much better as of late, along with the entire Steeler team, really. The offensive line, spectacular in this game. Just still not able to get a running game going but the pass protection has been much better. Now, again, like I said, we're going to talk about the four and six teams in the AFC later on, but at four and six, Pittsburgh's got to actually feel good about their chances. They got a game against Cleveland coming up next week in Cleveland, and then they have a road game at Baltimore on Thanksgiving. To me, that's their season. I mean, they got to win pretty much every game from here on out at four and six, but these next two games are huge. Their final four, three of their final four games are at home against Miami, Cincinnati, and Cleveland. The other game on the road, you got to go into Green Bay, and we've seen how they're struggling without Aaron Rodgers. Perhaps he's back by then, but we'll, we'll, we'll see about that one. But they're, the, the wins they have to get, Pittsburgh has to get wins against the division at Cleveland, at Baltimore. The toughest two road games left, division games, they got to win these ones. They, they have to beat Cleveland. They have to beat Baltimore. They can't have a hiccup or they're done. They're eliminated. Um, and honestly, they would probably eliminate Baltimore, who's also 4-6, and six, if, they, if they are able to knock them out on Thanksgiving. So that is really the status of the Steelers going to Detroit, the losing side. They had a real chance, I think, to really take a firm grip on the division. I know Chicago won, so they would they would still be in the hunt. They are six and four now. They're tied with Detroit, uh, and the two teams will not play each other again. They they split this year. Green Bay lost again. They're five and five. They've lost three in a row. They're slipping fast without Aaron Rodgers. Um, Detroit and Chicago. You know, I still think Detroit is the better team on paper. Uh, They're a young team, and they're going to lose a game like they just lost to Pittsburgh. It's an out-of-conference game. It's a road game. You know, I think it's somewhat expected from a team like Detroit. Uh, They have a lot of winnable games left on their schedule. They're, They're home against Tampa Bay. 
Then they're home against Green Bay on Thanksgiving. I think that'll be a win if Aaron Rodgers isn't playing. They go on the road at Philadelphia, who's becoming a pretty tough opponent. They're home against Baltimore. I think that's big that they're home. Home against New York, which who knows? I mean, the Giants are coming on strong. And then at Minnesota. I think they're going to win four, five of those games and finish with 10 or 11 wins. You can look at Chicago's schedule. And Chicago, I mean, they're, they're playing pretty similar teams. So Chicago has a pretty easy schedule as well. What they've got left is at St. Louis, at Minnesota, home against Dallas, at Cleveland, at Philly, Green Bay. I think the one thing Chicago should be worried about is whether or not Aaron Rodgers will be back for Week 17. But the way Green Bay is playing, if they continue to tank, maybe they don't bring back Aaron Rodgers, which would benefit Pittsburgh as well as they played them in Week 15. Um, So we'll have to see, wait and see on that. Honestly, I still think Detroit is the favorite in the NFC North. I just think they are the more talented team. you got Matt Stafford, who's healthy, unlike Jay Cutler right now. Megatron is on fire. They just got to get their defense together. I I, I do think that Detroit will end up um, winning this division. And it's an important division to win because I do not think the other team will get a wildcard berth with the 49ers and uh, Panthers, I think, getting those those spots. The only thing that perhaps is in Chicago and Detroit's favor for a wildcard spot, the Panthers, again, playing New England tonight and have two tough games left with the Saints. If the Saints are able to sweep them and they lose to New England, that's what? Um, that's, that's seven losses for, for Carolina. So um, that would probably push them out of uh, a playoff situation. Oh, I'm sorry. That's, that'd, that'd only be six losses. They're, the Carolina six and three. That'd be six losses if they win all their other games. Um, so they would. That would be ten and six, and that's still going to be tough. And if Carolina is able to split against the Saints, which I think is quite possible, then uh, that's that's. I think that's what's going to happen, and that would be why I'm predicting that only one of the NFC North teams are going to make the playoffs. And Green Bay, of course, the loss against the Giants. Here's our transition. The Giants defeating Green Bay at home. The Green, uh, the Packers are the team on the outside looking in. Same with the Giants, but only a game and a half back of the Philadelphia Eagles. Already played them twice and split, so they don't have the luxury of playing them again. Uh, but they're playing Dallas, who's been struggling. They're playing Dallas at home. I th- honestly, I think they're going to win that game. And then they're playing Washington, who's also been struggling on the road. So that's that's a must win for Washington. Washington at 3-7, and seven, every game for them is a must win as well. Um, that's a Sunday night game, by the way. The Giants, the way they played on on Sunday, I don't think it was as impressive as a win as, a win as Pittsburgh's. I mean, Pittsburgh... There's still things they didn't do right. I mean, they they still gave up 27 points and and over 300 passing yards and and a lot of yards for for their standards. Um, but but the Giants, you know, Eli Manning still turned turned the ball over inside the red zone. I still not on the same page with his receivers. Uh, but a big interception return from Jason Pierre-Paul that gave them the victory. 
Got 27 points against Green Bay. Held them to 13, even with the Scott Tozian starting at quarterback. It, it, obviously, it's a win for the Giants. Four straight wins now, and they're feeling good going into that Dallas game. I think they're going to get that win, to be honest. And uh, move move up to 5-6. and six. Same record as Dallas at 5-6, and six, and... They're going to be chasing Philadelphia, but like I said, they're going to need some help as they don't play the Eagles again. Um, I don't. I seriously doubt a wild card is coming out of this division, so you got to win it. Uh, and let's take a look at that schedule for the Giants remaining. Like I said, Dallas and then at Washington remaining. They got to go at San Diego in Week 14. That could be a tough game, but San Diego very quickly tanking, and then they're home against Seattle at Detroit. And then home against Washington. So I, I, to me, the toughest games really are Seattle and Detroit. And similar, very similar to Pittsburgh with the same record. In order to win the division, you got to win the division games. And the Giants have a, I think just the nature by their division, they have a better shot of winning the division than the Steelers do. Uh, but they got to beat Dallas once and they got to beat Washington both times. They only have three division games left. Pittsburgh has four. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that the Giants, their toughest, get, toughest games left, thank goodness for them they're playing Seattle at home. And that, to me, is a winnable game. Are they going to, I mean, are they going to win? I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't chalk it up to a win. That's not what I meant. I, I think it's a winnable game, the fact that it's in New York, not in Seattle. And then at Detroit, we'll see how the Lions do the next few weeks. Maybe they've got the division already wrapped up. Maybe it's a big game for them. And then on the road, I would think Detroit has the edge being at home. Um, But we'll see. Still a few weeks away, uh, the Giants and the Steelers, those fans got to be happy that their teams are still alive in their division races. Let's take another break, and then we'll come back with our fourth and long segment. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time Till touchdown brings me round and get too fine I'm not the man they think I am at home Oh, no, no, no I'm a rocket man Rocket man Burning out of fuse out here And we're back here on Football Nation's Monday Morning Huddle. Your host, Dave Holcomb. We're going into our fourth and long segment. It'll be an abbreviated fourth and long segment. I already really discussed one of the points, which was the illegal hit on Drew Brees. I want to get you out of here in under an hour, so uh, we'll we'll skip over that. Just do the other two statements. First one actually really wasn't a statement. Sorry to disappoint you if you prefer the statement fourth and long segments, which is what we normally do, but... I thought we should analyze the four and six teams in the NFL. Now, there's a lot more of them in the AFC than the NFC. I think the AFC is just filled with mediocre teams. Uh, the NFC, we'll hit upon them real quick. We talked about the Giants, who have a real shot still of making the playoffs, but they got to win their division. St. Louis, they're also four and six. A team that we haven't talked about, but Cooper talked about them last week. The Arizona Cardinals won again. On Sunday, 6-4, and four, they have the same record as the 49ers and as the Lions and the Bears. And if Carolina loses tonight to New England, the same record as the Panthers. 
which is pretty incredible when you think about it. Are they a team that's going to last? I, I have a hard time arguing for that. I know Cooper, that was his kind of sleeper pick, and he could look like a genius in a couple of weeks if they go on a little bit of a run here. You know, Bruce Arians went on a run last year with the Colts. Um, I don't see it happening. Um, I, I think, honest, I mean, St. Louis, even at 4-6, and six, St. Louis is a team that I want to talk about um, and not Arizona, so they, go figure. But uh, just wanted to make you aware of the Giants. I talked about in the last, last segment, Arizona, 6-4, and four, but the Rams, the other 4-6 and six team that I think are still alive in the NFC, it's going to be a lot tougher in the NFC to make it at four and six. But let's go over to the AFC. All right, you got New England, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Denver are now the division leaders. Kansas City, the top wild card, with the loss on Sunday night. If the playoffs started today, the Jets and Dolphins would be tied for the sixth spot at five and five. Wow. And then after that. You got Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Baltimore, Tennessee, Oakland, and San Diego at four and six. So I don't have a statement, but my question, which of these four and six teams, we got five of them. And by the way, Buffalo at four and seven, they just haven't had a bye yet. Of let's let's stick to just four and six of those teams. Those six teams, who is most likely to make a playoff run? Um, I know I just talked about them, but I'm going to say Pittsburgh, and I'm going to say Baltimore. A few weeks ago, I would have said San Diego. I think San Diego at 4-4, four and four, I think they were 4-3 and three actually. Yes, they were. They've lost three in a row. Um, I liked San Diego a lot. Even though they're in a tough division, I thought that maybe the AFC West would be a division to put three teams in the playoffs. Losing games to, to Washington and Miami. After Miami comes off a, a big loss to Tampa Bay. Um, I, I don't see San Diego making a run in it now. I, Oakland, I mean, kind of smoky mirrors out there. Uh, I, they, they've got some nice wins. You know, they, they beat some of these teams that are 4-6. and six, Like Pittsburgh, they beat the Steelers. Um, but without Terrell Pryor and with an unproven quarterback, are they really going to make a run, especially in that AFC West? Probably not. Tennessee, another team that I liked a couple weeks ago, they were 4-4. Four and four, but Then they dropped the most, really, the most important game of the year. Well, that's not true. But a must-win game against Jacksonville, and they're the only team to lose to the Jaguars this year, just uh, came off, or coming off a blown lead against Indianapolis, they're four and six. I don't really like their chances. I guess the reason why I like Pittsburgh and Baltimore is because they've been there before. They know what it takes to make the playoffs. Well they know what to they know what it takes to win a Super Bowl. I mean Baltimore's coming off a Super Bowl win. I think the one thing that they have going against them is that they got a target on their backs and everybody is gunning for the Super Bowl champs. To me it's gonna come down to that game on Thanksgiving. The loser is going to be out. Maybe not officially eliminated, but pretty much, for all extensive purposes, they will be eliminated from playoff contention, and that will be at the least the seventh loss for the loser. I mean, both of them could lose next week and have a seventh loss, and then it would be the eighth loss for whoever loses, and pretty much that would definitely, I would say, eliminate 
the loser. Although maybe at eight and eight, you could make the playoffs <laughs> with the, the Jets and Dolphins, the leaders for the sixth spot at five and five. Um, Cleveland, honestly, I, I mean, I haven't watched Cleveland that much this year, to be honest. I haven't seen them since the um, the game where they won against Buffalo on Thursday night football, and they I think they've started three quarterbacks since then. <laughs> so. Um, and in that game, Brian Hoyer went down for Brandon Whedon, and now Jason Campbell's starting and, and not doing all that well. He's had a couple of you know decent games, um, but I, I was going to say that on paper maybe Cleveland looks the best. I, believe it or not, I don't I don't know if you can say that or not, but Cleveland um, just definitely improved uh, in the first season under uh, what is it, Rob? I think it's Rob Chuswick. Uh, their their new head coach uh, and North Turner as the offensive coordinator. So I, I, there's it's very possible that there are brighter days coming ahead in Cleveland. And how much of a genius do they look right now with Trent Richardson trading him away? Maybe I should have made that a statement. Uh, Trent Richardson just being atrocious. Uh, he's not running the ball at all. And Donald Brown scored two touchdowns on Thursday night against the Titans. So it looks like he's going to be the guy going forward. And who knows what happens to Trent Richardson. Maybe he'll have a bounce back year next year or something. But, man, was that a, at least so far, lopsided trade for Cleveland, believe it or not. They're going to get first-round draft pick out of it, even if it's a late first-round draft pick because the Colts make a playoff run. They still get a first-round draft pick out of a guy that looks like a first-round top-five bust. So those are the teams right now at 4-6 and six still alive. It's very possible that one of them makes the playoffs in the AFC, and I think the Giants have a good shot of making it in the NFC. Okay, going now to the article that uh, Brandon Thorne wrote, Football Nation's Mount Rushmore of Quarterbacks. I am going to mention the four quarterbacks. I still think you should go check out the article right now. He's got uh, over 500 views on it. Um, Let's see. Yes, 512 views, 17 comments. Leave a comment. I think it's a great article to to debate about. But the four quarterbacks that he picked for Mount Rushmore were John Elway, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, and Joe Montana. Now, I mean, there's been a lot of great quarterbacks in the NFL, in the in NFL history. And I could debate about this for hours, but in just about two minutes, I just wanted to say, well, I guess I should make this a statement form because we haven't had a statement yet in the fourth and long segment. Okay, um, Brandon Thorne got the four quarterbacks right on Football Nation's Mount Rushmore. I'm going to punt that away. I'm going to disagree. I really believe that Johnny Unitas was the best quarterback of all time. Maybe, I think Joe Montana has an argument. I mean, all these quarterbacks have an argument. But I think Joe Montana, I could side with an argument that says that he is the best quarterback of all time. I really do think, though, that Johnny Unitas, different era, played before the Super Bowl. Yeah, during the Super Bowl, too. But played a long time ago. People forget about him. It was a different era in the NFL. Just... You know, the forward pass obviously was not as popular then as it is now. But I really believe among quarterbacks, he belongs on a Mount Rushmore, right? A Mount Rushmore, maybe not, maybe you don't put the best four quarterbacks on the Mount Rushmore, but you put the four 
biggest names or, or biggest players. And there was no one bigger in his day than Johnny Unitas. So I would say, not that Brendan Thorne got it wrong, I think he has a good list there, but I would say that Johnny Unitas definitely deserves to be on uh, Football Nation's Mount Rushmore of quarterbacks. We're going to take another break. Here's another song from Elton John. Then we'll come back and wrap up today's show. Welcome back to Football Nation's Monday Morning Huddle, your host Dave Holcomb. I do want to have a quick pitch advertisement for uh, myself. <laughs> um, me and Dave, Dave Levin and I, I should say, uh, one of our guest stars here on Monday Morning Huddle a couple weeks ago, him and I will be pairing up to uh, have another show. It won't be on Football Nation um, but we will be talking probably a lot about football, at least for the next couple of weeks, on um, on a radio station called MTR Radio, and you can stream it on uh, online uh, at mtrmedia.com. We will be on live, actually, on uh, every Monday and Friday at 9 a.m. So uh, I've been doing the show on my own. I feel like Dave and I had some pretty good chemistry, so I'm hoping that we make a pretty sh- pretty good show together, and overall, it'll make the live show even better. You can call in if you listen live, or you can listen to uh, on Rewind uh, on my website at davidmholcomb.com. You actually find uh, Monday Morning Huddle on that website as well. Don't forget, you can tweet at me during the week, D-M-H-O-L-C-O-M-B. You can also send me an email if you're not on Twitter, holcombmdavid at gmail.com. And I promise, one of these weeks... One of these weeks, I will get back to posting regularly on Dave's Football News. That's a Facebook page. If you're on Facebook, follow me there. Search Dave's Football News. Last thing I want to say, I didn't say it last week, and I should have. Last Monday, it was perfect. I had a perfect opportunity to thank all the veterans that the United States has. My grandfather fought in World War II. I had a chance to thank him on the air. It was Veterans Day and I forgot. So, well, better late than never, they say. So, thank you to all those U.S. veterans. If you're listening out there and you fought for our country, for our freedom, and for the freedom around the world, thank you for your service. Last thing, one more thing. I almost forgot. Good thing I didn't. Yesterday was the anniversary of the famous Heidi Bowl, or Heidi Game. I guess it's not the Heidi Bowl, the Heidi Game. Perhaps the most memorable regular season game in the history of the NFL. If For those of you who don't know, here's a little history lesson. 45 years ago to the day yesterday, the New York Jets played the Oakland Raiders on Sunday, Sunday evening. Not Sunday night. They didn't have Sunday night football. NBC. It was NBC, though. Had the Jets and Raiders on at 4 o'clock. And back then... It was very rare for a football game to go over two and a half hours. You believe it? Two and a half hours and you were done? Man, those must have been the days. <laughs> Way too many commercials in the game today. Um, but So the, the game, because of a lot of penalties, a lot of scoring, 
ran all the way to 7 o'clock. You believe it? It was three hours long. Oh, my God. I think the Lions-Steelers game yesterday was four hours long. So NBC only had allotted time from 4 to 7 on the East Coast. And sure enough, at 7 o'clock, Heidi came on. And at that point, with just a couple minutes left in the game, the Jets led 32-29 and gave up two touchdowns in the last minute to lose 43-32. (laughs) And New York Jet fans did not get to see the end. Maybe they didn't want to see it, but they did did not get to see the end. And that, my friends, is the reason why 60 Minutes never starts on time because there is now a rule that broadcast stations follow that each game must be shown in its entirety. That's also why that you don't get (laughs) the um, 4 o'clock games or even 425 games sometimes right on time because they're still showing the end of another game. They're not allowed to switch it off uh, at the end of one game to go to any other type of programming. So that would be why the Heidi game happened 45 years ago to the day on Sunday. That's all we have for today's show. Thanks for listening. See you next week. But in the meantime, I'm going to try and find some peace in my mind.